Well, this morning we're continuing our celebration of Advent. So rather than celebrate Christmas on just one day, we celebrate it for a whole month leading up to Christmas so that we can prepare ourselves, prepare our hearts and our minds. So we're thinking about Jesus, and each Sunday we light a candle. Today was the Bethlehem candle. The Bethlehem candle is a reminder to us, that little candle lit over there, that 800 years before Jesus showed up, God spoke through a prophet named Micah, and God promised that his son, Jesus, would be born in a town called Bethlehem. Now, that's actually a remarkably specific promise. 800 years before Jesus, God promises that out of all the cities in the world, his son would show up in this one little tiny town. So actually, when Jesus did show up in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that was actually proof to you that your Bible can be trusted. God didn't just make that up. That was promised 800 years before Jesus. But what I really want to focus on this morning is this question that the Bethlehem candle raises. I want us to think about what is it that we learn about Jesus from the fact that he chose to be born in Bethlehem. Because you realize Jesus isn't like us. You didn't get to choose where you'd be born. Your parents made that choice and you were just along for the ride for like nine months. But Jesus is the one person in all of human history who actually got to choose the place he would be born because Jesus is the son of God. He is eternal. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. And so Jesus got to choose, and he chose Bethlehem. So what do we know about Bethlehem? Well, there's not a whole lot to say. Bethlehem was a tiny little town five miles south of Jerusalem. It was always overshadowed by the bigger city. And so if you want a metaphor, you can think of ancient Rome as modern New York City. If that's the case, then Jerusalem was Bryan College Station and Bethlehem was Snook. Little one stoplight kind of town. You blink and you miss it. It's tiny. We know that because when Mary and Joseph showed up in Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn. Bethlehem was not big enough to accommodate many visitors. It was a tiny town, and it was an insignificant town. There were no big meetings in Bethlehem. There were no conferences. No one vacationed in Bethlehem. We have this funny little story in the Old Testament. The prophet Samuel traveled to Bethlehem, and when he got there, all of the leaders, the elders of the town freaked out because they couldn't imagine why a person as important as a prophet would come to a tiny little town like Bethlehem unless something really bad was about to happen. Bethlehem was a tiny, insignificant town. In other words, it's the exact opposite place from where you would expect a king to be born. Where are kings born? Well, places like Buckingham Palace, ornate mansions full of staff and wealth and luxury. Bethlehem is the exact opposite of that. So when Jesus got to choose where he would be born, he chose obscurity. He chose insignificance. He chose a tiny, little, forgettable, missable place. Jesus chose obscurity. Max Lucado puts it this way. He, that is Jesus, came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. 
The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Jesus chose to arrive in the world in a humble and obscure place like Bethlehem. And we need to face that reality this morning because we are living in a Kardashian world. We live in a world ruled by people like Kim Kardashian West, who has amassed at last count 86 million followers on Instagram, 49 million followers on Twitter, simply because of the shape of her body and her willingness to share everything online. And and Kim is just the beginning, because our generation did not grow up on social media and reality TV, but our kids are. Our kids do not know a world without 24-7, 365 exposure to everything online, to devices, to the internet, to social media, to reality TV. That's the world they're growing up in. I was amused this week when I saw that Samsung is already planning out their next phone because they blew it on the previous one. And so they're getting this new phone ready. And it's rumored that it will ship with a self-focusing front camera. And for some reason, that's a a big deal. It hasn't been done before. But I think the logic makes sense because what they realize is no one's taking pictures with the back of their phone anymore, right? All we do is this. All we do is take selfies with the front of the phone. Here's my favorite picture from the election. (laughs) Do any of these people realize they're standing four feet from one of the most famous women in the entire world and they can't look at her because they're too busy taking selfies? Was there ever a better word to describe the modern world than selfie? We are a selfie world trying to find Kardashian fame with our next post, our next picture, our next status update. We're consumed with this. But before we blame the Kardashians, let's recognize that there's just a little bit more Kardashian in all of us than we're comfortable admitting. We're all like that. We all have that desire within us for fame, for luxury, for approval, for prestige. We all are a little too fixated on our appearance and our popularity. We all do this. We post something online and we track to see how many people saw it, how many people liked it, how many people commented on it. And if it's not online, we care about what our friends, what our community says about us, about our appearance, about the house we live in, the car we drive, our our reputation at work, our accomplishments, our success. We care so much about appearance and image and popularity because we are not immune to the Kardashianation of the world we live in. We're all drawn into that. And so because we live in a Kardashian world, we need some time with Jesus. We need to look at Jesus this morning because Jesus is the anti-Kardashian. He is the exact opposite of everything that culture represents. Its pursuit of fame and pleasure and popularity and beauty and looks and likes. He lived the exact opposite kind of life. When you look at Jesus, you see a person who found peace in obscurity. He found joy in humility. He found strength in service. He lived a life that was the exact 
opposite of everything this world values. And so this morning, we're going to look at at the obscurity and humility and selfless service of Jesus by turning to the book of Isaiah. So you can turn to Isaiah chapter 53. It's just to the right of the middle of your Bible. So Isaiah chapter 53, this is a prophecy that God gave us through the prophet Isaiah around 800 BC. So 800 years before Jesus showed up, God told us what Jesus would be like, what his birth would be like, what his body would be like, what his life would be like, what his death would be like. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at the life and body and death that Jesus chose when he arrived on earth. Because unlike us, he got to choose all of it. So the first thing that Isaiah tells us is that when Jesus showed up, he chose an unremarkable body. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would, should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. When it says tender shoot there in verse 2, that's not a compliment. In Hebrew, that's describing the little sucker shoots that come out from the base of a tree. They're deformed. They're typically unhealthy. They actually hurt the tree, and so you prune them. So it's a, a, a misshapen twig is the idea, literally. And then it says he's like a parched root growing out of the ground. When the Son of God arrives on earth, you would expect him to be like a mighty oak tree by a stream of water. Instead, Isaiah says, no, he's going to look like a pathetic little root growing out of parched desert soil. He's going to look like the kind of plant that you just want to yank up from the ground because it looks so pathetic. You want to put it out of its misery. And so Isaiah drives to the conclusion. He would have no stately form, no handsomeness that we would be attracted to him. If Jesus was in high school, he would be the least likely guy to be chosen most handsome or most sexy or hot. He would not be the homecoming queen, king. <laughs> Clarify that, king. In fact, when Jesus would have shown up to his high school reunion, he's the kind of guy that no one would remember. Because he was completely unremarkable. He did not have the kind of body that you would say, wow, I like that. That's attractive to me. It's fascinating to me. We have four books of the Bible written about the life of Jesus. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you add it up, there are 3,779 verses in those four books. And in all of those verses, guess what you don't have? a single description of Jesus' appearance. We're told nothing about what he looks like. Other guys in the Old Testament, we know. So the, the Old Testament tells us that King Saul, he stood head and shoulders taller than everybody else. We're told that King David was handsome and had beautiful eyes. We're told about his son Absalom that no one in all of Israel was ever as attractive as that man. But for Jesus, silence Nothing at all said about his appearance. I find it ironic that when Mel Gibson made his movie, The Passion of the Christ, he chose Jim Caviezel, whom People Magazine named one of the sexiest men alive. Mel, you cast the wrong guy. Jesus would have never made that list. He was not sexy. He was not handsome. 
And the remarkable thing when we think about that is, again, Jesus is the only human being ever who got to pick his body. He got to choose ahead of time exactly what he would look like. He could have shown up as a superhero hunk. He could have looked like the Superman guy or the Thor guy. He could have looked like that. And he chose instead to look like an average Joe who everybody forgot. He chose an absolutely unremarkable body when he could have chosen to be a hunk. Maybe Jesus is telling us that good looks is actually a hindrance in life rather than a blessing. Maybe you need to chew on that for a little bit. He chose an unremarkable body. And the result is verse 1 when it said, Who has believed our message? No one could believe that this man was the Son of God. Because just look at him. He, He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a conqueror. He looks completely forgettable. And so when Jesus did show up, you know the story. He worked hundreds of miracles, more than we could count, and yet very few people followed him. Why? Because they couldn't imagine that the king of Israel would look like that. So many people rejected Jesus because we as a species are so caught up in looks. Jesus chose an unremarkable body. Second, he chose an unpopular life. Look with me at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. When it says he was despised, that actually that in English, that has too much emotion. In Hebrew, it's not an emotional word. They did not hate him. They just could care less about him. He was the kind of person that people are indifferent about. You wouldn't want to be friends with Jesus. You, you, you wouldn't want to spend any time with Jesus. People were indifferent to him and, and, and turned away from him. Why? Well, because we're told in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. Jesus got to pick his life. He could have picked a celebrity life. He could have picked a a kingly life, an athlete life, a billionaire life. Instead, he chose a slave life. And who wants to be around a slave? That's like the worst possible life to have to live. Jesus chose that life. He chose the kind of life that no one would want to be around. The result was that he was forsaken. He was abandoned by everyone. And that literally happened. When Jesus hung on the cross, everyone turned and ran. All of his friends abandoned him there as he hung naked for the whole world to see. As I was preparing for this message and thinking about this point, I I started to, to feel this incredible grief for girls and young women who have had nude pictures posted online without their consent. Maybe by someone that they once trusted or by a stranger who's really gifted at hacking. I can't imagine how humiliating that would feel. What I can say, though, is that Jesus does know. He actually knows exactly what that feels like because he's walked in your shoes. Because when Jesus was on the cross, there was no modesty cloth over him. He was buck naked. And we know that the Romans chose places for executions that were as public as possible. So they actually put Jesus up on a hill where two major roads intersected so that as he hung buck naked on the cross, thousands of people walked by, pointed, and laughed. And as he hung there for the whole world to ridicule his nakedness, no one stood with him. 
All of his best friends had abandoned him. Even Peter, his closest friend on earth, denied he ever knew the guy. Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to hang naked and abandoned for all the world to ridicule. And he chose that. He chose that life out of love for us. He chose an unpopular life that was full of sorrow and grief. That word grief, it actually means illness in Hebrew. It's talking about the kind of person who is chronically ill by some kind of of, of disease that, that misshapes your body, like leprosy. It describes the kind of person who, if you're walking in downtown Houston, is chronically homeless, and they've been on the streets for years or decades, and they're filthy, and, and they're smelly, and you don't want to look at them because you don't want to face the tragedy of their life. That would be Jesus. No one would want to even look at him. His life would be so incredibly tragic, so incredibly uncomfortable. So we recognize that and we realize Jesus chose that. He's the one and only person who's ever lived who could have chosen from birth to have the Kardashian life. That option was totally open to him. And instead, he chose to be the most unpopular man on earth. He chose a life where he was abandoned and ridiculed and forgotten. That's the life that Jesus chose, but why? Why would he choose this unpopular life? Well, Jesus chose an unpopular life so that the third choice would be possible. He chose a life where everyone would hate him so that he could make the third choice to die a selfless death. His unpopular life made his selfless death possible because everyone didn't even want to look at him. They despised him. They forsook him. They hated him. They were willing to kill him. And so we learn about the death of Jesus 800 years before it happened, starting in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him." His death was so painful that, according to verse 4, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. People who saw Jesus' death would assume God must hate him. God must be punishing him. Well, yes, actually, God was punishing Jesus when Jesus was on the cross. But it wasn't for Jesus' sins. It was for our sins. Jesus was punished on the cross for all the evil we have committed in life. And so in the next verse, Isaiah lists off all of these things that literally happened to Jesus. He was pierced. Literally, his hands were pierced by nails. His side was pierced by a spear for us. He was crushed. That word in Hebrew, it talks about crushing or pulverizing bones. It's a word used for when people are trampled to death. He was trampled for us. He was chastened. That word means to be punished or whipped. He was whipped and punished for us. He was scourged. That word means to be wounded or slashed, like by a knife. He was slashed. His blood spilled out for us. Jesus experienced all of that pain, all of that agony for us so that we could be set free from sin and death. And that's the point that Isaiah drives to in verse 6. We're the sheep. 
we are the, the foolish sheep who have turned our backs on God. We've walked away from God because we really like sin. We really like to be independent. We really like to serve ourselves. And so we have wandered away from God and that deserves punishment. So Jesus stepped in front of us. Jesus, it tells us in verse six, has actually been attacked by sin. That's the word. It's not just that God punished Jesus. It's that God allowed our sin and its consequences to attack his son. Jesus stepped in front of us, took that attack, took that abuse so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a life. When you look at the selfless death of Jesus, what you recognize is this shocking contrast between Jesus and the world we live in. So, so here it is, as plain as we can say it. Kardashian culture of this world put self above all. Jesus flipped it. Jesus put all above self. We live in a world that puts self, me, above everything else. Pursuing fame, pursuing glory, pursuing wealth, pursuing sex above everything else. Jesus flipped that around and put every person on earth above himself. Now what do we do with that reality? What do we do with the fact that the one and only person who ever got to choose his body and his life and his death put the needs of everybody else above himself? What do we do with that reality? I I really, I don't know. I've been struggling this week trying to figure out what to do with this message because it is so shocking and, and this truth is so convicting. I, I've been spending a lot of time over the last month reading about the psychological and spiritual effects of technology and social media. What is it doing to us and to our kids? And the more that I read about technology and social media, the more I wonder if Jesus would have ever been on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat. I, I just, I can't see it. Those platforms are built around that evil, insatiable desire within us all to be liked. Would he ever have even put up with that? Would Jesus ever have chosen to buy an iPhone and put it in his house? Would Jesus have had one of these? I just, I can't see it. There's so much evil that flows out of this little device, whether it's overt evil like pornography or cyberbullying, or whether it's more um, uh, unintentional forms of evil, like how we use this device to compare ourselves with other, to others and either feel pride or despair. Or how we accidentally use this device to post a picture online of a party we didn't invite everyone to so that lots of people can feel left out. There's so much evil coming out of these. I just don't know that Jesus would have ever had one. But I can't put the genie back in the bottle. This is our world now. Our families need it. Our jobs need it. I don't know how to put this away. And so it leaves me asking, how do we protect ourselves and our kids from the dehumanizing effects of this technology? How do we protect ourselves from the Kardashian culture we live in? I'm not ready to answer that question yet. I need more time. So that's my research project for the spring. I hope to bring you guys a couple sermons and some articles that will give you practical guidelines for how you protect yourself and your children from the dehumanizing effects of technology. 
Not ready to go there yet. What I can do today, though, is give you one practical idea. I want to challenge you to use this season of Christmas to reflect on your own heart, your attitude, your desires, your speech, your behavior, the TV shows you watch, the music you listen to, and especially how you use social media. I want you to reflect on yourself and I want you to ask yourself honestly, vulnerably, where are you more like Jesus, walking in obscurity and humility and selflessness, and where are you more like the Kardashians? Chasing fame and popularity and image and success. Now, none of us are Jesus. We all have more Kardashian in us than we want to admit. So honestly evaluate your life, your behavior, online and offline, and ask God to convict you and to show you. Where are you following the humble example of Jesus, and where are you giving in to the Kardashian culture of this world? Now, to give you time to think about that, time to reflect, I'm going to encourage you to do something very, very hard. I'm going to challenge you, plead with you, to spend three hours every day between now and Christmas with the television off and your device off. Three hours when you're awake. Sleep time doesn't count for that. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Three hours awake when your TV's off and this device is on airplane mode or it's in the other room or it is off. You got to have that time away from the, the constant distraction of this device and of the television so that you can spend time thinking about your life, reflecting on the example of Jesus. I encourage you to take some of that three hour chunk you have every day free of distraction, spend some of that time with Jesus. Reading his word, praying, asking him to teach you. You cannot be alone with Jesus if this is vibrating in your pocket. I encourage you to spend some of that three hours with other people, with your friends and your family, talking together with each other about how you can walk with Jesus in a Kardashian world. And when you're with your friends and your family, don't do this. Don't spend that time with the phones out. I encourage you, it's the holidays, it's time to eat with your family, really eat with your family. All your devices in a basket off to the side. Be present with those people in the flesh, that's the meaning of incarnation, be incarnate at the dining room table this holiday season, listening and speaking with one another about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the kind of world we live in. I challenge you to take that time looking at your life, reflecting on your values, your choices, the things that you desire and care about. I want you to think about that and pray about that and continue to remind yourself that the one guy who ever got to choose his body, his life, and his death chose a body that was unremarkable, a life that was unpopular, and a death that was selfless and grueling. And he did it for us. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning in communion. So if the men will head back to prepare communion as a band will get ready. I want us to to take the end of this morning, this time that we had together, to think for a moment about these truths we just talked about. It's so easy. Maybe you've heard Isaiah 53 a million times. And it's just so easy to not think about it, to not let it sink in and, and speak to you. 
I want you to think about what your Savior chose to experience in life on your behalf. No one made Jesus do what he did. You realize Jesus wasn't a helpless victim, right? Son of God, eternal creator. He chose all of that pain. He chose all of that ridicule. And he did it out of love for you. And so I I want you to think about these truths that we've been studying in Isaiah 53. And to help you do that, I'm going to read the passage to you again in a different translation. This is a new English translation. It's a little more readable. It's a little more understandable. So I want to read Isaiah 53 to you. And I just want you to hear it. If you need to, close your eyes. Just let these words wash over you. Think about what it's telling you about the choices that your Savior made on your behalf. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds. He was crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. I want you to take this time in communion to think about that fact. Jesus got to choose. And he chose to stand in front of you and take the punishment you deserve. He chose to be attacked by sin and death and Satan on your behalf so that you could be set free. Jesus did all of that so you could have eternal life as a free gift You don't have to earn God's love. You don't have to earn heaven. Jesus already earned it for you. That's what he did on the cross as he hung naked, ridiculed by the world. He was earning life forever for you. And he offers it to you as a free gift. And all you have to say is yes. God, I want that. I believe your son died for me and rose from the dead so I could live with you forever. That is the gift of eternal life that Jesus made possible. By choosing obscurity, humility, selflessness, and pain. And so as the men come forward, as we take this time to celebrate communion, as they're passing the elements, I just want you to spend some time giving thanks that Jesus was willing to choose this for you. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember that you got to choose The body you would have, the life you would live, and the death you would die. And you chose an obscure life. You chose an unpopular life. You chose an unremarkable body. You chose a grueling, painful, selfless death. And you did it all for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you experienced all the pain this world had to offer. 
And you did it as a sacrifice so that we could be set free, so that we could have forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you for your incredible love, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that through the life of your Son, you've shown us a better way in a world that is caught up with all the fame, all the the likes, all the popularity, caught up with image and appearance and prestige and status. We praise you that through Jesus, you've shown us a better way. You've shown us that through humility, we can find peace and through obscurity, we can find joy and through selfless service, we can find strength. We thank you for the example of your son. We pray that you would convict us and challenge us. We pray that you would give us the strength to turn off our televisions and our devices and give you our undivided attention. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to truly be with each other, to be present in the flesh with one another this holiday, to listen to one another and learn from one another, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach us in the coming months how to follow Jesus in a Kardashian kind of world. We pray that you would help us to be different. We pray that you would help us to be a refuge of hope and peace to the world so that when people get burned and burnt out on the obsession for fame and popularity of this world, Lord, that they would come to us to find hope and love and peace and joy. We pray that in Jesus you might bring them the hope that they're looking for. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name and for his glory we pray. Now if you'll stand, let's respond and worship.